are live. Welcome everybody to the Cafe Hangout. I am John Pollock. I'm now allowed to speak from waiting. He is a very has very rigid orders when we start this show. And joining us live in studio, Damian Abraham. I just got out of the pool. If you're watching this on <laughs> webcam, god damn, it's Damian very hot out today. And I ran here. John's like, we're gonna go live. You're gonna have to sneak in. So I'm like running, running, running. And oh, then, oh, I'm sorry. You you could have just uh, been fashionably late. You're you're at that level now as a as a, a status symbol that well, you could just be uh, fashionably late. I notice. Here's the thing I've noticed, John, and uh, because I've now been on the radio or on broadcast with you guys so much. You get looser as soon as the green light goes on, you know, like or the red light goes on and, and the mics are hot. You're you're like much more casual. Oh, yeah, I had nothing to say before. Way gets way more clamped up. Way gets a lot more strict. True. We're the opposite. Yeah. So you would have been chill with me sliding in here, but Way would have heard every single thump and crash that I made and hated me all for it. Way's just making sure that the the legs support this entire system figuratively, literally, and nothing falls apart and we have no hiccups. No one talks when the mics are hot, like I did last week. Listen, I have a I have a very high standard to live up to now that Damien's so used to this high quality Vice production. Well, you think that's you know? me? You, well, I mean, you've seen my podcast. I'm if it was saying, me, it would I'm be saying. the people you work with are at a very high level. Oh, they so are. I, I hope to give them plenty of credit throughout this episode. Absolutely, I yeah. think they deserve all the credit in the world for kind of like I I came to this project with a very loose idea of what I wanted it to be, and uh, they made it way more real than I could have ever hoped. I mean, has it been, uh, I'm not going to say the, the line I'm going to because it gets me in trouble, but uh, to, to see um, at a greater exposure level on, on Vice in, on Viceland in the U.S., I mean, have you, I, I have to imagine that people that were going into this following Dark Side of the Ring, this was a very different series that mm-hmm. we said from the beginning, mm-hmm. and I think they complement each other very well. Has that kind of been the general sense of people that went into this, maybe not knowing what to expect and going off of like dark side of the ring leading into this, that um, what they expected, good, bad, indifferent. I've, I've heard a lot of really positive responses. There have been some negative responses and even negative responses that I kind of coveted, you know, when we were co- maybe talk- the subjects covered or well, just subjects covered, you know, some people like, you know, were very offended about the politics that were kind of running throughout the show. And it's, I don't think we put those politics in there. Those politics are there. We just kind of talked about them. Uh, also, you know, negative feedback from certain older heads in wrestling that might not be up to date with sort of the current, uh, values and approaches to professional wrestling. And those are the kind are of these pe- public comments or you've heard from people. Oh, privately? definitely. Very public, very public. Like right. Jim Cornette went off on the show on his show. And that was like, you know, someone sent me the soundbite and I was very excited about I, that. I didn't actually hear the comments. What did he say? Uh, he went off on the show, went off on the first episode specifically, Went off on the deathmatch episode. Oh. Uh, I didn't hear all of it, but I think like you know the fact that we did piss him off with this show shows that we're on the right track. You know, if he had, mm-hmm. if he was like, "Oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for," then I'm like, "Well, I think we're too much like Dark Side then." Well, I think that it's it, it's a series that I think explores so many different um, realms of professional wrestling that many people would have no idea going into even existed out there. Like you put a light on professional wrestling in different cultures that I don't think anyone would have thought going into this. I think that's the thing I saw, like pro wrestling cuts across cultural lines in a way that nothing else does. You know, like there's no music I heard every single place we went. You know, there's no food that I ate every single place that we went. Maybe Coca-Cola. <laughs> I saw Coca-Cola every place that we went. But save that, there it was very much, uh, 
you know, like there were certain things that I saw in certain places, you know, and they would be, you know, visible in other places that we went. But for the most part, pro wrestling was the thing I saw that cut across cultural lines. And that's true. There are tons of places we didn't get to go this time that it's also present. In. And like, it's amazing how this is truly an art form and a global art form, you know, in a way that a lot of music genres aren't, a lot of uh, visual arts aren't, you know, because you don't necessarily need big expensive tools to make pro wrestling happen. You just need two people some physical prowess and some imagination in an audience. If you had told me like two years ago when you're like just pitching the project that like, you know, you wanted to travel the world and cover professional wrestling as it, as it exists. I mean, I, I, I don't know how successful like you would have been outside of Japan, outside of perhaps the UK, outside of obviously Canada, uh, America and Mexico. But you managed to find professional wrestling that existed like even in the place like the Congo that I had no idea not only existed, uh, but was kind of treated the way it was in, in, in such a large subculture. Well, I like, you know, Congo, to be fair, I did not know about it all. That was actually Sarah Wiley who found it out. And it's funny because Vice actually went and did. How was she aware of it? We were looking for stuff about Nigeria. Okay. Wrestling in Nigeria. Like I knew about Nigeria through Colt Cabana's podcast and hearing about, sure. you know, wrestlers going over there and having to wrestle Supreme Power Udi and just dealing with this guy that, you know, and just the, the way wrestling was taken up in Nigeria I, fi- Nigeria, I found fascinating. So we were really trying to do an episode in Nigeria, talked to some people there, found out that it was going to not be feasible to do. <laughs> people were like, yeah, you will... You will not be able to make your episode. So that's still a dream that we want to do maybe sometime in the future. But in researching that, Sarah uncovered, not uncovered, sorry, but just sort of found out about Congolese Witch Catch. And it's funny because Vice did, or Vice published a photo exhibit out of Vice Japan about Congolese Witch Catch in 2007. Okay. So, but apart from that, in a National Geographic piece, there was no information about it at the time. And she just kind of, you know, saw these photo exhibits of it was like, you guys got to go there. And we just kind of went from there and just kind of, that was the one we knew nothing about going in. Bolivia, we knew something about. Uh, Nunavik, we knew something about. This one, we had no idea. Uh, Damien's going to be here in studio for the entire show. And we will be going uh, through the news. We're also going to preview some of the big shows coming up this weekend that Damien will uh, be free to chime in on. Uh, But if you want to call in, 732-800-4423 is the number to call. If you want to chat with Damien or speak about whatever topics you'd like, phone lines are open. You can also Skype us at Post Wrestling if you so desire. Uh, Yourself as well, being like front and center on this, what what kind of feedback has, have you gotten? Like, I feel very biased, but I honestly believe that if I did not know you, I think that you are like a terrific host on this series. Thank like you. it's like it really comes through and hit me by the end of it. Like you're just so adaptable and come across so likable. Like I, I would not be able to host a show. This is like a show where it's just you are very much the Anthony Bourdain here placed in this role that goes to all these cultures and you essentially become the wrestling fan that is weaved into all these different cultures. You are the constant. Well, at one point, thank you. I appreciate that you saying that. And I think at one point they did want to do it unhosted. You know, there was a talk, like I came up with this idea and they're like, we, what about without you hosting it? I think that would have like you personalize it. That's what I kind of think you, and you know, and I, I personally felt I should do it because <laughs> I was very passionate about this project, but I think you needed a host, you know, you need, like, that's the thing about that Anthony Bourdain show. You could go around and just interview everyone as a talking head, but you need someone to 
to sell it to By you. the fifth or sixth episode, it's like, I'm traveling with you to That's, these countries. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. you've you've built that rapport with the audience that, uh, I'm sure maybe the first episode, hosts can be very overbearing mm-hmm. at, the, at the beginning. And you have to, you know, it would be like if I was doing a show with someone other than, than, than Way. Mm-hmm. It would be a change. It's People are very comfortable. And a host is serving that role. And I think you really get to that. Um, as the series progresses, well, I think that, I think our our hope was to try and find, and this was actually Nathan and Jeff that were like when we had this t- conversation about the fact that I was like it needs to be hosted, uh, was the idea that the host was going to sit out, and you see it a lot in Anthony Bourdain stuff, and I think it's trying to find that balance between a documentary like a Thin Blue Line, and then a documentary like Michael Moore's stuff, you know, yes, like where he's right. just kind of constantly the voice in that, and I think that's where Anthony Bourdain's stuff found that real sweet spot, especially. You know, parts unknown where he's really found that kind of perfect or rest in peace. But they've really found this perfect kind of sweet spot where the host is there. The host kind of gives you entry, but then the host also sits back and lets people tell their own story. So you don't have this, you know, in my case, big, bald, white bearded dude constantly like looming over everything and trying to put himself in there. Like, okay, if you're not sold on this guy, can we show you some reaction shots? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but that's the thing is also like I love this stuff, right? So when we and I found a lot of you couldn't we, manufacture that I think in these these series. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing is also when you're in these conversations with these people where we have no cultural connection other than pro wrestling. So I'm sitting down with someone in the Congo and we just start throwing out names, you know, back and forth of WWE wrestlers and just different influences that they have, different people that they might have seen on the internet, and different people like that have popped up kind of onto their radar. And just like through these names, we're kind of communicating. It's very similar to what happened when I was in, you know, I've been in this band touring the world. You know, I'll be in China talking to some kid backstage. We don't have a, a shared language at all. But what we do have is a shared cultural experience of loving this type of music. So we're just communicating through talking about bands. And I find that is like, that's such an amazing bond to have with someone, you know, when you go in there. And I think just the fact that you have that kind of connection, it totally sets off everything afterwards like Ray Mysterio Ray, Ray Mysterio uh Ray Phoenix first time I met Ray Phoenix he uh he and I just bonded over loving wrestling and that was like I think where we kind of established like okay you're a fan you're not just some guy who's trying to expose what we're doing you're, you're trying to celebrate what we're doing yeah I think it's that level of like enthusiasm and passion that you clearly display throughout the series that to me like draws uh the viewer really right in there with you even for i would say i would think audiences that initially didn't really have that much of an interest in pro wrestling but i'm curious like how much did you hear from non-wrestling fans i've gotten i've gotten a lot of response a real real positive response from non-wrestling fans you know people that and I, i think that was the hope too is like you know it's one thing to talk to someone that already understands why this is amazing it's another thing to talk to someone that might have had a passing interest in this at one time but then fell out of love with it and trying to find, you know, showing them there is something still to love in this thing. Um, there's been, a, yeah, like a real positive response from people that every show being like, I had no idea what I was watching. I think last night especially was just yeah. kind of a resting TV with the Even comic, like so. from wrestling fans, I would imagine you had much of that reaction. <laughs> yeah. um, shall we discuss a little bit about what the episode was? Yeah, sure. The, um, the Congo episode. The Congo episode, which I've heard Damien talk about so much. And I remember actually watching it the first time it aired. But I guess like I, I maybe like because time had passed, like it felt fresh to me again. But it was the idea of just like Damien going over to the Congo and investigating into the their, I guess, a phenomenon that exists over there. Their version of professional wrestling very much based in 
would you say the religion of witchcraft or is it the culture of, Seems of like witchcraft? Seems hand in hand. Yeah, I think it's culture, religion. You know, it's something that definitely at one time was like the predominant kind of faith of people, but it was, and it's been, you know, attempted to be wiped out and has, because of that, morphed into what it is in, in its present form by Christianity and colonialism, like I think. I was incredibly fascinated because like on the surface, I'm watching these matches and what you're seeing is like, I think to like, you know, a North American traditional wrestling fan's eyes, maybe a, like the type of match you would see between The Undertaker and like Papa Shango. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Except with the idea that kayfabe still very much exists in the Congo mm-hmm. and people are not only taking these matches very seriously, but they're also these matches are vehicles with which that, you know, people are trying to sell religion mm-hmm. or sell their witch craft services. Mm-hmm. Which I think everyone has like you look at the the history of professional wrestling and you know, televangelists, there is a there's oh, yeah. quite a spectrum of the, the Venn diagram crossover of, you know, paid programming to essentially get people to spend money. And yep. I think the industries are very similar. I think wrestling is the most honest thing in the world because it's the only business that tells you it's all about money right out of the gate because every other business ultimately is, you know, and that can be a religion. It can be a charity. It can be a casino. It can be whatever. They're ultimately trying to talk you out of your dollars. And wrestling is the only one that will tell you that right to your face. Like, that's what the goal of this business is, is to make money. And I think that's why it goes so hand-in-hand in wrestling and religion. You know, you see so many people cross over from these two worlds just because, you know, it's the idea of, of telling someone something that they want to believe so badly that they're willing to look past certain things around them that are telling them not to believe. And that's not to undersell someone's religion. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I do not disrespect anyone's faith. And I think that's what we really tried to do in this. Like, I never, I never wanted to kind of bring my own cultural biases to what I was seeing. You know, I wanted to try and take it in as an observer and just be like, this is happening in front of me, you know? And it was very intense that, time. That certainly felt like the truth because uh, not only were you there to investigate the story, you almost became a part of the story yeah. in that, like, they... <laughs> Okay, so the story of, of the principal character, um, I, I forget the gentleman's name. Champion Jarabu. Jarabu, yeah. Jarabu, yeah. So he is a recently converted uh, former witchcraft wrestler mm-hmm. who recently converted to Christianity, and he's since become almost like a story that the, the I guess, the, the, the pastor is using to try to sell people to convert from, uh, uh, the, you know, I guess the witchcraft uh, uh, beliefs to Christianity. And throughout the course of, of the interview or, or the, your experience, they had you continue to recite chants. Um, Chilabo. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what Thilabo, Chilabo meant at all. And, you know, and you can see me, I keep mispronouncing it. And our fixer never really told me. It wasn't until I got into that church. Yeah. And I'm like, what are we chanting? Like, I can't believe, I thought it was the wrestler's chant. Like, I thought it was like doing like the, oh thing with Hacksaw Jim Duggan like so I thought that's what we were all doing right to me the entire series like had maybe its most serious point when you explained that you were requested to go meet with Jeribu and the pastor and told that the cameras couldn't be there Mm -hmm. and then you came back out and you told the cameras they had just told me with two of their very big security guards around me um, that they wanted me to be uh, give a speech at, at, at this uh at the church and you like handled it i guess tell me what was going through your your head well like so they get they they, there were a couple things that didn't really come across unfortunately because we couldn't get cameras into that room 
Um, so I tried to recount it as best as I could. What happened was they told us like, Hey, leave your cameras in the car. We just want to talk to you inside just about what's going to happen at this church today. And so we walk in and immediately the, the security guard who you can kind of see in that sea of people, he's that guy that looks like a human Island in the ocean of humanity walking through. That's one of the dudes. And then the other dude, they stand in front of the door and they're like, you have to give a speech today. And we're like, well, like we don't really feel comfortable doing that. We're kind of just want to like, you know, film this. We'd love to interview you afterwards. They're like, no, 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 you are giving a speech today. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, can we discuss this? They're like, no, 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 there's no discussion. And then I'm like, okay, well, well, okay. So how's it going to go? They're like, what are you, what are you going to say? And I'm like, um, hi everyone. Uh, bonjour. I'm Damien Abraham. I'm here from vice Canada. We came to Kinshasa to document like basically what I said on stage. And then he's like, no, 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 no. Here's what you're going to say. You came from Canada because you heard there was a great champion who had found Christ and he took on an entire locker room full of witches and beat them all. There was a foul witch who cut off a man's penis and ate it in her mouth because she was evil and just wanted me to start cutting down. I'm like, I can't cut down all these people that we've also met and know that they're completely cool and they're, they're, they're wrestlers. So I just went up there and just was like, let's just do what I do on stage when I'm in fucked up, which is yell and run around. And that's what I did. And then you kind of like, it seems like in the midst of this, you're piecing this all together, that this is all like the charade that these people are, have completely bought into. And yeah. now you're finding yourself like a piece of it. They show yeah. video evidence of Damien chanting, uh, Jesus, uh, like who's pray. stronger. And then it's Jesus. Yes. They basically doctored, you know, I guess the footage of, of getting you to, to praise Jesus on stage. And what was the immediate reaction to, to you coming off a of stage and, giving that the, the i guess saying what you did oh well like i also the other thing that was i think key that we never got on camera was the fact that the pastor is a huge wrestling fan like oh. he and i talked about rick flair a lot like anytime the cameras weren't rolling he would sit down and be like you know he'd be chilling with us he'd be like our buddy he'd be like do you want to watch football later on like you know i was on your plane i was in first class though what up and like showing us his clothes he was like you know he'd always talk to me about pro wrestling like rick flair rick flair you like rick flair and in fact he, earlier on in his sermon he went what to the crowd and and that's as soon as he did that i'm like i'm good i can go up there and i can treat this like a pro wrestling promo so as soon as i got up there i just tried to pace myself like it was a pro wrestling promo gave the audience lots of time to to react to what i was saying did the woo gave the shout out to rick flair mm -hmm. jumped off and then we just left <laughs> in that you chaos country <laughs> when that chaos we just left the whole place we left wow. and never came back to that church we they they came as they came and grabbed us and we're like okay we're gonna pray for you now and we're like okay we're gonna stay by the door here's your microphone back and they finished the prayer and we're like okay we'll see you we're never gonna go back and you never said like goodbye to Jarabu or anything no we saw never saw Jarabu again and we found out later on which kind of gets talked about that he had actually we'd given a lot of money to the other wrestlers and it didn't get to the other wrestlers oh and stuff like that geez. so we had become friends with a lot of the other people wrestling at that point and and kind of knew that we had been we had been worked a little bit. You know, like we had been worked into thinking that this was something different than it really was, which is the art of wrestling ultimately, right? So absolutely, it was it was amazing to kind of like find ourselves. That's why I think it's great that that was one of the last episodes because I think you need, especially as a non-wrestling fan, you need all these tools that you kind of get from all the other epi episodes to tackle. Even as a wrestling fan, like for, for, for my entire life, I didn't really know what I was watching. So conceptually, it was just like completely so out there. How many conversations did you have with any of the, anybody there where they were strictly out of character? Tell Never. You? 
Nobody. Never. The closest thing is when we're talking to Jarabu's opponent, and he's kind of breaking down why he had to do the job. You know, he's like, mm-hmm. I was in his neighborhood. You know, like, there are certain rules in wrestling that, you know, there's certain realities, and this mm-hmm. is the reality. Um, that was close to it. And then after uh, Queen Shakira cuts off the guy's genitals the, and, and yep. leaves the, the ring, and it's all the chaos, the, the referee... first thing you see in the entire episode. <laughs> the first yes. thing you see in the episode, the referee turned to me and he goes... Pretty cool. And I said, the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't get over how incredible this wrestling is. Like, I just do not understand how we haven't heard about it as wrestling fans until now. Like, yeah, it was. It's been its own in, in its own little corner of the world. Yeah. And it really feels like the, you know, as much as we're going to, we can benefit from, obviously, as wrestling fans, seeing this brought into the wrestling kind of toolbox global wrestling toolbox i think you can tell by the conditions of the ring they have conditions of the equipment they have that uh hopefully there's some way of of you know wrestling outreach getting to there you know like updating that ring updating some of the conditions because they are making the most out of nothing like did you ever get the sense that there were people in the public that kind of go along with this or that they're they're fully um under the the manipulation of what what this is that they all believe this we met we met a real cross-section but yeah definitely um the kind of last day we were shooting there we met some fans that seemed to be like the closest thing i'd say to to fans like us that we met like you know fans that are like oh yeah we follow this around like this person's from this neighborhood so they'll win in this neighborhood this person's from this neighborhood they win there dave Meltzer of the congolese wrestling we met these we met these guys and we tried to get in touch with them but the phones never worked afterwards because we'd like we'd love to interview you just to kind of like get the breakdown they're like oh we love queen shakira's the best we follow her around like you know to different matches and it's there's one ring for all these wrestling federations in kinshasa to share so there's other organizations other people that we didn't get to meet there's whole other storylines unfortunately that got cut for time in this episode including we met this guy texas who's an albino wrestler and he does not believe at all in witchcraft he's a a christian wrestler but not evangelical christian he's just a christian wrestler never practiced but uh witch catch fans just said well it's because of he's magical and that's why the magic doesn't work on him and that's why he's able to just wrestle these people because he would just no sell people's magic and beat the crap out of them and and tie them up and and just wrestle them this like, is where they should have done Undertaker and Goldberg. <laughs> like, this would have been... That's kind of my question. Like, have, as far as you know, have there been any kind of outside... Uh, have any wrestlers ever traveled to con- the Congo to wrestle? Has there ever been any type of, like, cross crossover? One of the things I find... This like, is where MLW has to go travel. Do, well, do a tour yeah. of the Congo. <laughs> Wrestling... You, see, you mentioned how the WWE regularly airs. All the, every day. Yes, every, every day. day. Yes. But they have never, ever been. And is it, there any financial incentive? Like this well, does not look very like little. a country that is, uh, you know, would be any kind of profit center for them to to make it worth their while. Yeah, I think it would be the biggest show they would ever run. I think it would be a logistical nightmare to run it. Like I think they would have to run Stadium of the Martyrs, you know, where the Foreman Ali fight happened. You know, they would have to write run somewhere huge, and it would be there's there's no money. Like I've never experienced yeah. poverty like that in my life, where just people don't have access to to you know, a lot of the basics that I take for granted, you know, like, and it, it certainly was constantly a theme on this TV show is just how privileged I am, like different places I'd wind up going and being like, wow, this is makes me very grateful for what I have back home. But certainly Kinshasa was that in, in the most glaring kind of form. Did you ever feel that as, you know, representing like a media outlet uh, 
you know, from North America that you were ever, um, that A, they felt either threatened by what you were going to be uh, exposing to the public that might be manipulated into believing mm-hmm. a lot of this, or B, looking at you guys as, as a tool for their own benefit to to kind of push forward. I think I think definitely in Kinshasa with the the pastor we got kind of used as a bit of a tool, you know. But uh, you know, I was never upset as upset about that because I think at the end of the day we're generating content, they're generating content, you know, and it's just this sort of thing where yeah, like well, both of us are are ultimately using each other, you know, yeah. like. You know, he was, of course, like, yeah, show this stuff on camera. And we're like, oh, this stuff's great to show on camera. And there's stuff we, he showed us that we didn't show because we're like, well, I don't know if it, like, you know, we saw a mass exorcism for 50 people, you know, having like exorcist style exorcisms on the ground uh, in this giant room. And he's like, you guys want to film this? You want to film this? And we're like, I don't know if that's going to fit the documentary, but like, you know, it definitely fit his narrative. And, uh, but, you know, I think. You know, we were accepted a lot of places. I think being from Vice helped a lot of times. Is that a valuable brand in the Congo? I wouldn't say in the Congo. No, in the Congo, I think the thing was that we had, like, we showed up in neighborhoods where people were straight up, like, saying, coming up to me, and, the, and you know, uh, Silvansi would be like, they've, ne- they're saying they've never seen someone like you before. Right. Like, they've just never seen a white guy. Like, people would be like, can I touch your skin? Can I touch your tattoos? Because there's, you know, witches are the only people with really with tattoos. So they'd be like, can I touch your tattoos? I'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, people want to touch my beard a lot. Um, you know, we, and we had cameras, you know, like no one had shown up to film this wrestling. It's not shown on TV there. It's not really documented in any sort of great way. Like we really didn't see any footage of it till we got there. Now there's a little bit more. Vice did another piece kind of between when we filmed and when this aired. Mm-hmm. But still, like, we had never, you know, we had no idea what it was going to be like. So I think just by virtue of novelty, we were kind of accepted in a lot of places. And I never felt unsafe walking in right. these communities. And I felt unsafe when we were dealing with the police and the army in Kinshasa. <laughs> like, then I would get a gun in my face. And that's not something, why you know, you I'm used to, to. Why did you have to deal with them? Just going through roadside checkpoints where all of a sudden yeah. there's, like, a guy who's, you know, 20-something. And he's got, like, a collision of cough in your face. And there's someone screaming in French to show them your passport. And you're like, well, I'm not going to put my hands under my jacket. Well, you've got the gun in my face. Like, you know, and it was, we got out of those situations all the time, thankfully, because Savancy, our fixer was amazing. But those were the only times that it was like, oh shit, this is kind of unsafe. Another time cops tried to shake us down. They said that we were filming them. We didn't have to have the cameras turned on. They're like, oh, you're filming us. Got to come to the station. But once again, our fixer came and just Jedi mind tricked them and, we, we were okay. But yeah, those were the only times that it was like... Can you damn. explain the concept of a fixer for somebody who doesn't know? Yeah, fixer. Anytime you see a show shot anywhere that the crew is not familiar with in some capacity, you normally try and get someone who's essentially a field producer, but you know, you call them a fixer. Somebody local. Typically. Someone local. Someone who knows kind of how to get stuff done, you know, depending on the countries you're going to, depending on the areas you go to. You need someone who knows what you can and can't do knows who you can and can't talk to. And the success of your shoot really depends on the success of your fixer. You know, like I think every single show we were, every single shoot, we were lucky to have the fixers we had. 
production wise, like did did the show have to follow any type of you know um, template or format or techniques even set forward by previous Vice shows or shows of this nature, or were you just free to do whatever you want? Where I, you know, like uh, they would, Nathan and Jeff would know better what they actually got notes wise, but I think the idea was. I, I can't imagine when you guys were leaving the Congo, what you are envisioning. What is this episode going to look yeah. like? Like what you've done? How long were you there, roughly? Uh, ten days. Ten days. Yeah. And what you shot? Like I can't imagine piecing this together in my head. It was even like just going back to the hotel room at night, trying to unpack what had happened that day. Like every single day, there was just no mental downtime. Like it was amazing going to Japan, shooting those episodes in Japan because the work was intense because we're shooting three episodes, but mm. it's so relaxing, you know, like people in the, in the crew were going to day spas. People like were, you know, I was going to record stores, hanging out with Way. But in the Congo, like you'd go back to the hotel room and, and you could either go to the bar or the hotel and then there was a 50% chance that you were talking to some completely monstrous, terrible human being who was there to exploit the country further. Because the hotel we were staying at for the insurance had to be expensive. And, and granted, these hotels wound up being much cheaper than staying in Nineveh, and they were, but they were fancy hotels. So the only people that were really staying there were people that worked for NGOs, you know, that were trying to provide aid of some sort to the Congo. And then people that worked for giant mining firms that were smuggling out cobalt or people that worked for this company that was trying to do this or that company that was trying to do that. So not being a drinker, I just go back to the hotel room every night. I had my birthday in the Congo and just had my cake. Oh, really? Yeah. The day that I saw uh, Queen Shakira cut off the guy's penis, it was my birthday. Um, Happy birthday. Yeah, it was the best birthday ever. And I went back to the hotel room and just ate the cake in my bed by myself being like, what did I just see today? Like... I can't. And there's no internet, too. So I'm just like kind of in this moment of intense isolation being like, this is the this is the most amazing. But yeah, like leaving that every shoot, every shoot, it was wild, like being different places. And there's like a bunch of threads that came up that, you know, we didn't get a chance to explore. But like here we are on the very first shoot shooting with Austin Theory. And he's like, yeah, when I was nine years old, I walked into an MMA gym down the street from this gym my mom was working at and Bill DeMott was running a wrestling class and he let me become part of his wrestling class at nine years old and it's like meanwhile we're talking to koto abushi and kenny omega about trying to do something with them in japan and kenny omega someone that was bullied out of american wrestling by bill demont mm. and only really went to ddt as a result of his interaction with this guy that was the guy that brought austin in it's just like all these weird things that were connecting all these episodes and it was yeah these were the things that i was just fascinated by as we were shooting yeah that's um yeah, it's interesting as you have all these shows going on and the interesting, like, wrestling at its core, it's like, it is a small world. Mm-hmm. You, know, you guys kind of expand that, but it's these threads that kind of overlap with one another where you're going to get instances like that. Like you mentioned with Shane Strickland, like, shooting another episode and then he's on a show. Absolutely. Well, there's, like, you know, that uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon or Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Mm-hmm. You could do that with wrestling. Oh, you yeah. know, like, it was like, I could connect everyone, you know? Like, here I am shooting with... MVP, who I know through, you know, punk rock stuff and uh, through Zach Blair, who I play in a band with, who MVP grew up with, like all these sorts of connections. But he's working for MLW. And I know the people that run MLW through you guys. Like I know Court because of meeting him through you, John, you know, and then I'm meeting Tom Lawler down there, who only reason I know him is through you guys. You know, it's just like it's amazing how like you're saying it is a small world like diy anything diy diy comedies like this diy wrestling's like this diy music's like this where it is a network of friends that make this thing work and that have made this thing so awesome 
And that's why everyone loves everyone in wrestling. No one yeah, has any no grudges. There's never any issues uh, behind people's backs. It's like it's just a wonderful little neighborhood. Um, <laughs> any closing thoughts, Way, on the Congo before we go to the I'm final? Curious if you, I, I mean, is it even possible that you would have received any type of feedback from the people featured in the? They in haven't the seen it yet. I feel really. I bad. want to know what Queen Shakira thought. I want. Well, that's the thing. Is like I want to. My next thing now is that this is finally out. And now that people can see this, is that how do I? give back to this place you know and how do we make wrestling that much better for people there and i think uh yeah like i want to if there is a a queen shakira pro wrestling tees store i would (sighs) gladly pick up a shirt that's what i'm saying i think i think a queen shakira pro wrestling tee show store (laughs) is in the works i think my (laughs) ultimate goal is queen shakira coming over wrestlemania weekend versus joey ryan (laughs) oh (laughs) could you imagine could you imagine sold out perfect uh, opponents. Wow. I think Joey Janela's spring well, break just got call the show. You can call the show. Queen Shakira comes to America. Hip tosses don't lie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Always bring it back to pop. John, we haven't even talked about Aquafest yet. Uh, it wasn't Aquafest. It was the 90s nostalgia party. And much like last time, I looked at my Instagram and who was following along in all my stories. This Damian guy. Damien Abraham. Of course. That this I, guy. I, I think... My life that I, I live musically is the one that you you have such high credibility. You you can't you can't appreciate we this publicly. He's, he's, he could be. A, you should have come with me. I, I would have. I wanted. I was waiting for the invite. When you're like, all oh, my friends fell through. I'm going by myself. I'm like looking at my phone, waiting for John's oh, joking please. text so I could be like, yes, I am. You, you and Wade both should have come. It would have been a, a very See, fun time. I think Damien's credibility is just so tied up. and like That would have been a blog T.O. story. <laughs> uh, lead singer of Fucked Up spotted at S Club 3, yeah. the reunion. I guarantee you, you give me a moment, I will find someone on that bill that played in some obscure punk band. Yeah. Elma Combo bans Damien Abraham and Fucked Up after revelations of Aqua <laughs> Fan Fest that appearance. Would, <laughs> believe I mean, that would be the least embarrassing thing that played the Elma Combo stage. I'm very curious, actually, from your music side, uh, yeah. side, have you heard much uh, response to the show? Yeah, there's been like a lot of amazing response from people. Like a lot of actually like, you know, when you're talking about Laps fans, a bunch of my friends that were into music that were kind of Laps wrestling fans are like, no, I'm, I'm all back in. Like this has been really kind of what I wanted really? to see. Yeah, like, uh, you know, like, and I, once again, like we didn't make anything. We just exposed people to stuff that was going on and the mm-hmm. stuff that was happening. But like, you know, if you walked away from pro wrestling because you're you were like, oh, I don't really like how they're making Trish Stratus bark like a dog, you know, at that point. I mean, uh, like now more than ever, especially with a show like this, you completely like debunk the myth that the WWE is professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. It's it's a far, far, far bigger world than what we've seen. Yeah, like it's definitely it's I would I liken it to coffee. You know, they, they're they're the Starbucks, you know, they are the global brand for this thing. But they aren't coffee. You know, there's a lots of other and I think they're very much like Starbucks in the way they've tried to rebrand this thing that they sell into their own version of it, you know, but there's there's lots of other coffee out there. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like um a play on like what you explore in this that you you do have these fan bases that it almost is like you're defending a religion. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what my Twitter timeline is every day. It's oh, just yeah. these people that it's not arguing um, you know, it's it's arguing philosophy. It's arguing like styles, and mm-hmm. that's ultimately what what you're seeing is like a lot of tribalism within professional wrestling, just amongst amongst companies. Yeah. It's like every time I think that pro wrestling as a business is going to get boring. You know, like I thought the AEW versus WWE narrative was already in place. 
And then look at this Paul Heyman, Eric Bischoff kind of change that came. And all of a sudden it's like, well, how is this going to go now? Like this is now the, the complexion of this has changed greatly. And now it feels like it's very much shaping up to be a battle of eras of pro wrestling. It, that, that story to me, it fed every appetite of what mm-hmm. the wrestling audience craves today. Big power moves behind the scenes, big personalities and politics, like all men managed into that story that and ultimately driving people to the programs. Yeah. So it's like it to me was a story that I was not surprised at the the tidal wave that it was amongst the industry last week. Like that took over everything. And that's to me the kind of story that just this wrestling audience just craves that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and the two greatest what ifs ever. And we're in the era of the what if podcast where people go back and, you know, the Conrad Thompson podcast where you just like dissect an era and you look at it and you talk about you know, hypotheticals potentially and different things that could have happened if different things and what went wrong. This is the great, the two greatest what ifs in wrestling. Like what if Eric Bischoff had been with a company that had backed him the whole way through, even though when you actually look at the, the nuances of what happened, it's a little more complicated than that. And Paul Heyman, like what if Paul Heyman had had, had not had cash flow problems. Like once again, it's a little more nuanced than that, but like these two things, like these are the two people that theoretically could have dethroned Vince McMahon now well, the answer to the first what if is aces and eights, and we, and we got, we, we got <laughs> yeah, we that saw, answer we spread saw. out over three years. <laughs> but, that, that. but I don't know if we're even going to get an answer to the Paul Heyman question because he's he is working for Vince McMahon. Yeah. That is the major yep. difference here. Yeah, no, they all are ultimately, and that's the thing that you know. That's the like this could be an incredibly exciting time in wrestling, or it could just be more of the same because we have seen both these people under Vince McMahon before, and how much influence they were allowed to exert at that time. So it could be more of that, you know. What, what is the kind of your, like, what's got, what's got your kind of captive interest at the moment, wrestling-wise? Uh, I think I think New Japan still, you know. I think New Japan is constantly, uh, the Jado Gato booking alliance is just constantly able to find people that are interesting, make stories that are compelling. Like, I think going to this G1 you know, it's like last year, everyone's like, oh, this is the dream G1. I'm like, I don't know. This year's the dream G1. Like every year it feels like they put together something, you know, more impressive. Uh, I think, uh, I think. I've got know, to keep up with all of John and Way's shows. Like that's a must. That's, John and that's John and Way. Well, John and Way, like now. Are, are you going to join us for a show? If you guys want me to, I will definitely. I'm going to, Holden and I are going to watch the whole G1 this year. That's our goal. My eldest son is now of the age where he's like. I'm in to watch this thing. Oh, maybe he oh, should wow. join us too. Uh, he would. He would love to. We'll get. We'll find a fourth microphone. Is he a WWE fan? Not really. Like he. He's. He tries. It's hard because there's not. None of his friends are. Mm. You know, like it's, it, it's like uh, our friend Mike Murray. He's in mm-hmm. Dallas right now, and his two daughters are mad. Like they're going to the G1. Like they turned into a family vacation, but they're yeah. going to the G1. They seem like they're way more into New Japan than yeah. any WWE or any other. Not like they are big. Like. LIJ fans and it's interesting it's one thing to hear people like of our age that are following New Japan more heavily now because it's accessible it's quite another to see how that's coming onto the radar of teenagers and and lower yeah no it's definitely it's got to be it's got to be a new product you know like it can't be anything that appealed to even us you know like the stuff that's going to be appealed to this generation it's got to be something new and different and it, maybe it's New Japan. Like, maybe that's finding something that's closer to what they're looking for as far as wrestling goes. I find with him, you know, it's fun to watch it. Like, you know, like the way they construct the matches, the way that 
the the stories are told by these two athletes in the ring. It's just it's something that they can engage with. I find it really fascinating because I mean, what you're describing as very new uh, and something that might appeal to to a child is not necessarily anything that's risque or like you know edgy. It's something incredibly traditional, mm-hmm. which is what I think the New Japan product is. It's traditional professional wrestling, but done really well and obviously in a modern wrestling style. But there's no concerns, obviously, about showing him anything within New Japan that might be deemed too inappropriate. There's like the odd thing where I'm like, oh, that's a that's something we got to talk about. But like for the most part, no, it's like it's like cringe free kind of viewing for the most part. Um, yeah, we don't. I, I guess we don't have the uh, the cameras following Maria Canellis yeah, to the ring. Exactly. Uh, although we don't have our shortage of them uh, in terms right. of their their shooting of certain females. Exactly. Like there there are some stuff that has to be explained to him but as far as as far as like a show it's it it's it a lot less embarrassing stuff i find is now Hol- it's changed though is holden watching any of the wrestlers he watched a couple of the episodes definitely not the congo but you know i felt like there were certainly a few of the episodes that i think appealed to him how about the episode with the exoticos which is the actual finale the finale no he has not seen this one yet which i think is an episode he could totally watch and mm-hmm. i and i just think it's a lot of it's in spanish so the Spanish ones he is. It's the most likable person in these ten episodes, not Joselo. Joselo's amazing. He was awesome. He I, was I thought awesome. he was great. And especially to take him to the shows and how he uh just took them in and I mean it's really off putting to hear crowds chanting like the remarks that they did. Yeah. And it's clearly jarring to you, but not so much to Joselo or even some of the performers. Like um it was uh uh Povo de Estrella who yeah. It just seems like uh, I'm not offended by these remarks. I'm not going to change their mind. They're not going to change my mind. It's almost just accepted. And, you know, I'm sure there was uh, within this generation of fans that heard chants like that at wrestling. If that were to happen today in any major show in the U.S. or Canada, those people would be absolutely scorned and thrown out of a show. Absolutely. Well, you know, I would say in major markets in the East Coast and the West Coast major markets, I think there are probably places that that sort of behavior still carries on i'm sure it does but i would say on any kind of major level like that 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 chant would just not be tolerated no definitely not and i you know and it's something that i'd heard before filming the other lucha episode just as part of but it's just a huge mexican sports chant like it became a huge deal with the mexican uh football team in the world cup that their fans kept chanting this and they were like we are now going to penalize your team for you chanting this in the crowd because it's just such a it's just such a component of, yeah, like Mexican fan culture. And I think that was the thing. As soon as I found out what it was, it was shocking to me. But it's something that, once again, Jose Lo has had to put up with his entire life seeing this. And that's why he wasn't a fan of wrestling. And I think it wasn't until he met Estrella that he found someone that he could be like, oh, no, you're, you're, you are the real super gay. Like, you're doing exactly mm-hmm. what I was doing but in wrestling, like you have the power to change this thing. For people who haven't seen the episode yet, uh, it, we were talking about uh, body slamming homophobia in Mexico is the title. Yes, the concept of the exotico, mm-hmm. which traditionally, I guess, in Lucha Libre is, uh, I guess, your very stereotypical, um, you know, homo- homosexual wrestler. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, though, not just characters that are portraying homosexuals, but actually homosexual. And well, historically, it wasn't. Okay. Like originally it was just used to mock gay and effeminate men. And mm-hmm. it was just someone playing like a very exaggerated, hypersexual villain. Like yeah. you're always the Rudo. 
Like we see in North America, yeah, traditionally. Definitely. Right. And like I think the most famous example of an Exotico character is Goldust. Right. Like the Goldust character, Goldust was working in Exotico, and it's funny talking to Polvo just about how much of a... I guess almost like a, a an admiration he has for Goldust and how like what an important character Goldust was, even though they started around the same time, but just like very indebted to Goldust as a character. Yeah, and it's it's interesting historically. Uh, prior to the term homosexuality, it was known as mind games. <laughs> was <laughs> that that was the term in WWE? In the WWE, it was always Goldust using his, his mind, mind games. games. Yeah. That, mind games. It's so interesting, and I wonder if Dustin Reynolds is even aware of like the, the influence that he might have had. I think he did yeah. wrestle in Mexico too, so he must have picked up some influence down there, like maybe from maybe from seeing people hmm. like Pimpy or Cassandro early right. on, right? Like, well, he just did that interview with Chris Jericho, and he talked about you know not fully jumping into the character at first and it was Savio Vega who kind of encouraged him that I think it was a Madison Square Garden show where it was like you know start like feeling me up and it was like pushing that which got over with the audience but it was it was ultimately to give like an impression of ew gross the guy yeah. is gay yeah like and that was the overall that, that was the statement that they want to convey to give that kind of elicit that reaction from the audience that has I think thankfully evolved. And well, that's and that's still like that was where the Exotico came from. They wanted that exact same reaction from the audience. And then it was a wrestler like Cassandro that you know has been featured in a lot of documentaries. Uh, was living in San Antonio at the time, so really we couldn't we couldn't find a way to put Cassandro in the documentary. But there's certainly a space for Cassandro to be in this documentary. Cassandro worked with Pimpy a lot very early on into both of their careers. Um, but it was Pimpy and Cassandro fighting for this to be a space and another Exoticos as well. Um, for gay men to be open with their sexuality. And now, obviously, it's evolved to a much more complicated space now that you have wrestlers like Estrella, who's mm -hmm. a luchadora, but not recognized as a luchadora, still being forced to wrestle as an exotico. Yeah, and stating, it's an interesting fact. Like, we hear the term exotico and the fact that, you know, some of just wish they could just be identified as a luchadora mm -hmm. and not have to have this term that defines them uh, as a wrestler, that that becomes the all-encompassing trait. Yeah, no, I think it's very much like a, you know, like it, like there are certain wrestlers that I'm sure embrace the term deathmatch wrestler, but they're wrestlers that happen to wrestle deathmatches, as Jimmy Lloyd says in that deathmatch episode. And I think very much with, with the wrestlers we met down there, they're, they're luchadors or luchadoras that are wrestle as exoticos, either by choice or by that's where they've been kind of forced to be. I love the uh, the old footage you got of uh, Pimpinella yeah. from like the early days, like just doing dives. And, yeah, like, that that was really cool. Pimpinella, like that was you know people ask me all the time, like who who was your most starstruck to meet Pimpinella? Like that is someone who obviously I didn't grow up with Pimpinella Escarlata, but like growing becoming a fan of this and then kind of studying it and just realizing the importance of Pimpy. And here I am just hanging out with Pimpy like all day. Like it was just very surreal. Like that was a, a an amazing experience. I will cherish. It's funny too. Cause there was one other story beat that was supposed to be in that episode that got cut. We were supposed to do a whole thing with Maximo about a, okay. a straight, a luchador who wrestles an, as an exotico. And he's the only exotico at the time in CMLL because CMLL wouldn't have actually any exoticos in their company. And just that here's the most popular Exotico doing, you know, for lack of a better term, and I've heard this term used, but gay face, you know, like someone who's mm -hmm. playing, you know, a gay character rather than being a gay person, obviously playing with whatever they want to play with. And it mm -hmm. was 
but he, uh, him and his uh, family decide to smash Ultimo Guerrero's car the night before. Oh, and yeah, so, that's when that whole incident occurred. Yeah, so we're actually sitting outside the CMLL office as he's upstairs getting fired. And he's like, I don't think I'm going to be able to film with you guys today. <laughs> like, wow. yeah, I don't think you will be either. That, that was a separate episode right there that you could have uh, oh, potentially gotten. There was a lot of other times where there were other moments where it was like a choose your own adventure. It's like, do we follow this? And does this become the episode like Nick Gage showing up and doing an invasion at CZW or... You know, uh, Maximo destroying a car. There were a lot of other potential. The thing with professional wrestling, you can go into an environment with one story idea, you could leave with three. Absolutely. It is still, you know, the most amazing, fertile place for story. Like, it's it's just any place where you have artists that have to sacrifice to make their art, there are great stories. And wrestling, there's no greater sacrifices that are made by artists, I've found. You yeah. Know? How much, how much similarity did you kind of like draw from your music background when you're going through all this stuff? Obviously, you are the punk rock pro wrestling connection <laughs> man. But, you know, like in traveling the world and seeing all these different genres of professional wrestling, like what were some similarities that you discovered between the two cultures? They're very similar. Very, very similar. The difference is like, and I would also lump comedy in this too. Like, you know, that, sure. I think that's why musicians and comedians and wrestlers get along so well. Uh, the difference is, though, that wrestlers, they are, they're, their tool of their trade is their body. Mm-hmm. You know, so at the end of the night, I'll come home, my, my throat will be sore, and, you know, maybe I've thrown myself on stage a little bit around, you know, so I'm a little banged up. Everything they do is going to bang them up. So they're carrying this around with a lot more pain. But just also the, you know, there's obviously great, huge rewards and success and fame, but there's also... Just below that, like on a on a razor thin line between the two, you know, kind of hand to mouth subsistence, which is what a lot of wrestlers and a lot of musicians kind of, you know, are able to, you know, ply their art by living like. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of similarities between the two. And I was also amazed how many people, you know, once again, I'm a big fan of the punk wrestling connection, but how many people in wrestling just want to talk about music, music and anime. Those are the two most popular things in the pro wrestling locker room. As you look at a, a character like Sonny Kiss and once AEW gets to television this fall, do you think that is a character that is going to elicit these kinds of discussions about doing, you know, the, the, the trademark spots like, you know, putting putting the ass into Tommy Dreamer's face mm-hmm. in the Battle Royal and certain stereotypes that that character conveys uh, and, and how that's going to be handled, especially on national television. And th- this kind of goes into a lot of the kind of like as a wrestling fan, you kind of just see it for what it is and don't really look at how this is being viewed to the outside world. There's a, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, how a lot of things that once again, we very much understand within the wrestling bubble are taken up once it hits the mainstream bubble. And I think, um, you know, like certain gimmicks definitely, you know, for example, are going to be something that have to, that are going to be taken up and are looked at by a whole new world of people that don't have the same experiences to dissect them. I think the other thing that's going to be really looked at differently is intergender wrestling. And I think you got a taste of it with um, Lucha Underground, but ultimately that was to a very small niche audience. This is going to be a much broader thing. And that's a statement that kind of got lost coming out of the weekend was Tony Khan being very adamant. Yeah. If you watch his scrum, it's the of all the interviews he's done, it was the most revealing in terms of what his philosophies are and what AEW, getting a sense of things. And one of it was there will not be any intergender wrestling yeah. in AEW. Yeah, and I think that's the... Uh... I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see, like, going forward, how people take up intergender wrestling as it gets talked about more and more. I really feel like wrestling, you know, like, 
obviously this could be proven totally wrong, but it does feel like it's going towards something big happening, you know, just in general, like another mainstream kind of moment for pro wrestling. Uh, and like Tony, Tony Khan's comments, I wonder how, how much they are shared by the rest of the executive directors that are part of uh, AEW. We know Kenny Omega is, you know, very, uh, his I don't think you can imagine Kenny Omega or the Young Bucks share that philosophy. I, I don't know yeah. enough of Cody of whether it would be yes or no, but so, those three, I would feel very confident. I mean, they've, they've made a huge part of their, uh, backstory of working, whether it was with Candice LeRae and Kenny Omega's entire history mm. in Japan is very much interwoven with female wrestlers. And ultimately, you know, like it is Tony Khan's company, so he he would have final say. But it, it you know, running a company is very much going to be a collab collaborative process where people are going to going to have to kind of sacrifice their own beliefs. So how is that whole top mix going to work out with mm-hmm. all of these guys? You know, especially Cody being in there with with the rest of them, all having relatively different philosophies. Well, also you depend like you know. Week two, if ratings are terrible, they might start bleeding. They might start having intergender wrestling. Like, I think that it's also TV and ratings are very important, you know? And it, and if this is a clear indication we are not going that direction, how does a WWE necessarily respond to that? We have seen the WWE this year flirt with intergender mm-hmm. wrestling before going all the way with it. And it seems like that is probably a topic that it's not dismissed outright because we've teased it. And... Let's be honest, that Nia Jax-Randy Orton spot got over in the Rumble. Um, are they going to explore it further? I mean, that's it's something that ultimately... And, like, I, I'm I'm neither pro nor negative to it. I think that there's, there's instances where I have not liked it in Lucha Underground and other times when I think it, it can come across very effective. Yeah, like, I, I, you know, once again, I've seen it live and I've seen it with a bunch of educated wrestling fans. And then I've also watched it on TV with people that have never seen intergender wrestling and just to see their reaction to it is is telling we got a phone call here for uh the cafe hangout as we let our host put on their headset caller what's up good afternoon gentlemen how are you oh this is the legend from new jersey you have the privilege of talking to brendan i've heard you many times on the show my friend how's new jersey oh it's wonderful i'm i'm a fan of your uh the, uh, the series on Vice. It's tremendous. Thank, thank you very thank you much. Thank you for Hey, happy 4th of I July, have... Brandon. Oh, happy can, uh, Canada Day as well, right? Three days late, but yes, we'll take how, it. How, how old is uh, the country today? 243, Brandon? I, I would imagine pretty close to that. Uh, are you going to watch the Trump uh, military parade? I'm not. I don't think I will I be. I don't think. It's blacked out here in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Uh, question, Damien. Uh, well, why were you wearing that shirt in the Congo, man? Because uh, it made me very humid. Watch the pink shirt. Any 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 dress shirt. I, I, I felt felt so arid and humid. Those though the Congo wasn't bad. You know the Congo was fine. I think if you'd seen the Exotico episode, there's that moment where Povo hugs me after his match, and I think I was sweatier than he was. Um, because <laughs> Acapulco looked very hot. Acapulco was very hot. It was it was hot and humid. Japan was incredibly hot when we were in Japan. Have you heard how hot it is in Sumo Hall in the middle of August? No. Yes, WH has more than informed. Oh, us. I've, I've been listening to the podcast. It's I literally, I think, been sucks. every show he's brought it up up <laughs> Sumo Hall and how hot it is. It's my favorite. Like. Go to. I went to Sumo Hall and I did not take off. I was wearing a full New Japan tracksuit like an idiot, but I did not take it off the whole time. I did not find the air conditioning uh, was <laughs> terrible there at all. You know, I will, I will, t- I will challenge him on the stardom audience, and I will challenge him on the air conditioning at Sumo Hall. Was that it, Brandon? 
Damien uh, Sir. Real quick, I, real quick, I popped when that pastor hit that hit that dude with the the the, the heel when he fell backwards. It, it, it felt like when the Undertaker hit a Kane with the thunderbolt in the ground. That was, I, I, I thought that was pretty funny. It was a Hudukin. He fired the Hudukin right right at him. <laughs> it was a. Uh, Jesus. It, no, that was the that, that when I watched the video the videos of them and I was and I talked to him about pro wrestling, I understood a lot more what was going on. I think it's probably true of the American, you know, and also a lot of people have been like, "Oh my gosh, how can they believe this stuff? How can they believe this stuff?" It's like if you're raised with a culture around you, you'll believe some crazy things, you know? Like, you know, John and I were both raised believing in virgin births and and resurrections of the dead and stuff like that, which, you know, when you take it out of context, sounds a little weird. I feared for your life when you jumped on the stage like that. At the, I did both times I've watched the episode, and I knew he was okay after it. And both times I was like, this is the end of Damien. I knew if I was in the crowd, I, I knew if they, if I went back to his private quarters, I might be fucked. But I knew if I stayed in the crowd, we were okay. I thought you were going to crowd surf. Uh, that would have been, uh, that would have been epic. <laughs> no, that would have broke some poor person's arm, and then I would have had to answer for that. No, I knew I needed to keep it nice and safe with my crowd interactions. Uh, all right, that's all I got. I love you guys. I'm we happy. love you too, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Um, before we wrap things up, I do want to go through uh, quickly uh, the cards that are coming up this weekend. We've got the G1 kicking off on Saturday night. Are you going to be watching this weekend, Damien? Yes, I am. I'm going to. I'm not going to be watching it as it goes live because I promised my son we could watch the next morning. We have. Uh, I'll just run through the whole card. Underneath, we have Rapongi 3K against the Gorillas of Destiny. Jeff Cobb and Ren Narita against Shota Umino and Tomohiro Ishii, which should be a lot of fun. Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi against Jay White and Chase Owens. Six-man tag with Tetsuya Naito, Shingo Takagi, and Bushi against Juice Robinson, Toru Yano, and Jushin Thunder Liger. And then we get into the tournament matches. Uh, I'm going to get your predictions on the first night. Will Ospreay versus Lance Archer. I think Will Ospreay. Evil versus Bad Luck Fale. Oh, bad Luck Fale. I think they'll give him that one. Oh, no, Evil Evil is probably pretty popular in America. Evil. Sonata versus Zack Sabre Jr. I got to go with Zack Sabre Jr. Kota Bushi versus Kenta. Kota Bushi. I think this match is going to be... This is a very important match for Kenta. Absolutely. And then the main event, Kazuchika Okada, Hiroshi Tanahashi. Uh, do you think I, they do the time limit, or guess, are we getting a winner? I, think I, think, I win. feel we're getting a winner. I think we're getting a winner, and I think it's probably going to be Tanahashi. I could see that happening. You know, it's a good moment. <sighs> I forget what I said. Um, on the, have on you the made primer. your predictions? I have not. I'm waiting to do that. It's actually a little bit involved, so I'm going to sit down probably for a full hour, think about every single match. Do you think Kenta's going to win? I think they don't. I don't think they give it to Kenta's think, first match. I think Kenta's going to win. I think he is too on this yeah. one. I, I think, think he, he wins needs his first to. match in. Uh, okay, I think it's going to be amazing. That one is the one I'm most looking forward to. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they just for the the story purpose of it. I think Kota Bushi should be selling the neck mm-hmm. and making mm-hmm. it seem like he is not 100 percent going into this to get the maximum value, and then you see him. Have to conquer Naito at the end. Do we have time for yeah, one more phone call? Yes, absolutely. Caller, you're on the line with Damien, John, and Wade. What's going on, fellas? This is Joe from H-Town. Hey, Joe. Hello. Long time, first time. Oh, it's, it's great to hear from you, Joe. Are you ready for UFC on Saturday <laughs> night, or are you watching G1? Uh, probably watching UFC. I wanted to go to Dallas, but uh, we got a trip plan, plan for California, so I need every penny I got uh, for that trip, but... uh. I'll be watching UFC probably. Um, I had a couple of questions. Um, I'm not sure if you guys heard about Booker T. Uh, he he made a, a little comment about uh, Matt Riddle, and it, it just kind of blows my mind how 
you know, uh, to me, uh, the only reason, uh, have you guys heard the comments you made? No, uh, I, I, I kind of have the Coles notes of it, but why don't you just recap what he said? Yeah, he, you know, Matt Riddle had, had been, you know, complaining about and making comments about Goldberg and, and uh, after that match, and then kind of like as a rebuttal, you know, he, he kind of said, Matt Riddle, I, you know, I've seen him work, and he needs a lot of work, and he needs a lot of work, and I, I don't know why he's talking about anybody if he needs that, that much work, and that's just kind of like... Have you come on, man? Have you seen Matt Riddle and seen what he's doing? Like he's going to be like a whole Hogan type of star in WWE. And I just kind of felt like he just made those comments just because Riddle made the comments about Goldberg. Uh, that's probably the source of it. I don't know that for sure, but I would say with with, with Matt Riddle, I think that's one of those things where at, at times you you have seen that more so in the past. But looking at a guy that we've seen this guy get over, we've seen him popular, and then it is kind of breaking down a guy and going through all these faults. And yet we've seen the proof of concept that mm-hmm. this guy has gotten over. And instead of looking at all the negatives of of a performer, not realizing that this guy, we have seen him work so if and get over. So if there is now this idea that we have to break this guy down and rebuild him in our image, that to me is totally missing the point on someone like Matt Riddle. Yeah, and I, I love Booker T. He's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Obviously, we shot him for the show, and that was amazing. But at the same time, it's like his negative endorsement is almost like the best endorsement you can have. Remember when he said, you know, remember the Young Bucks were over for not shaking his hands, and now they run half the industry, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, Matt Riddle's going to be the biggest star of all time. Like, I, I really have felt that before, and now I really feel that again with this Booker T. negative endorsement. I also see it as just, you know, somebody defending a colleague somebody of his own generation from you know what what can be perceived as somebody who has not been in the industry as long nor as accomplished as somebody like Goldberg from publicly criticizing and I think you can argue whether or not Matt Riddle was right to like publicly state something yeah, it was, like I, I think I think the guy did it uh, with the intention of trying to like do his own angle that yeah. he was certainly encouraged to do but yeah I thought I thought it came off badly on his part too mm-hmm. yeah for a guy that legitimately went out there you know Bill Goldberg is not a guy that is just going out there to just dog it and take a paycheck. Like he takes this stuff really seriously. He gets in shape, uh, came in to have a great match and got messed up really early in the match. It's like, it's really hard to fault a guy getting a concussion. So I thought that it was, you know, he came off badly too. I would love to see in his prime Booker T versus in his prime Matt Riddle in a pride fight though. And that would be an insane fight. Booker, pride T. Fight. Booker T in, fought. In remember, yeah, remember when Booker T fought Dave Batista? <laughs> oh, that's right. He is. He is one and zero. Yeah, that. no, he's got. There's like a bunch of crazy stories about him being like legitimately Jeez. super hard. So I'd, you know, I'd imagine a little more training too. Like he's got a little. Well, you know, yeah. That's a, that's a dream fight. Both those guys big. They'd have big reaches. Yeah, there was there was a period Batista was incredibly unpopular in that SmackDown locker room, um, and that, and that was kind of the climax of it at this commercial shoot where. They got into a fight, and from all accounts, it was Booker T with his arm raised at the end of it. Do you have another question there? Yeah, yeah. Damien, I'm loving the show, man. I Thank haven't you. kept call last uh, last uh, night's episodes, but I'm really loving it. Hopefully, we see more of that in the future. And uh, one last question before I go. Why in the world is MJF and Sean Spears tagging on the same team at the next AEW? That, 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 that's just, I don't understand that. It kind of makes no sense that, I mean, on the same show, they shot like an angle between the two backstage that it almost seems like it's tailor made to spin those two off. And, you know, in watching, I don't know if you've seen the the latest road to fight for the fallen, the best show that is out there right now on wrestling, the greatest interview of Brandy Rhodes life. 
She yeah. is so phenomenal in this thing. It's one of the best promos I've seen this year. It's unbelievable. But there's also this portion where MJF is standing up for Cody backstage and getting into Sean Spears' face. And it was the first time that I saw that MJF is going to be a phenomenal heel. One day he's going to be a great baby face too. Yeah. You know, actually, you know, promo of the year for me is that, did you see that Eddie Kingston, Joe uh, Gacy promo for the new Evolve 10th anniversary show? No, it's I haven't black seen and it. white. Oh my God. I'll check that out. It is incredible. Eddie Kingston, once again, you know, I, don't, I talk about him every time I'm on the show, but. They're taking on uh, AR Fox and Leon Ruff, I think, at the network show next weekend. I'm excited for that show. Holy jeez, I'm excited for that show. Will you watch that uh, as opposed to Fight for the Fallen? Ah, that's hard to say. Maybe just because of like loyalty to all these people involved in it that I, a lot of people that I work with. Both are going to be great shows. Most fans, I imagine, would check out both. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing is now you can have your cake and eat it too, but it's which one are you going to watch live is the. The real battle. And when are you going to work in UFC in Sacramento? Your well, I'm gonna, I listen to I listen to your post show. That's that's how I follow UFC, John. That's why I think that Booker T versus Matt Riddle would be a great fight because <laughs> I just follow through podcasts. Thank you so much for the call, Joe. Um, yeah, and that okay. match, by the way, it's Jimmy Havoc, Joey Janela, and Darby Allen against Sean Spears, MJF, and Sammy Guevara at Fight for the Fall in next weekend that they announced it, on the video. It's one of those things I imagine where they'll shoot an angle explaining it afterwards. I think there's a storyline reason Why did you it. put me in this match? I hate this fucking yes. guy. Yeah. Uh, so, so they'll figure a way out of it. Before we wrap up, I, I want you to maybe you know take this time to talk about maybe Salazar Productions and the people that helped yes. to put the show together. Absolutely. Like Salazar Productions were people that I kind of got put together with not really knowing them um and in that situation you you, you kind of just hope for the best expect the worst and it was definitely the best possible scenario uh nathan and jeff who who run salzar who you know behind the scenes but also yuji and and colin and sarah and grady all these people that worked on the show um we all just kind of locked you know ideas and i kind of gave them my philosophy and my outlook to wrestling and it just jived completely with their outlook and philosophy to art in general and it was mm-hmm. just i've never worked with strangers and just had it click like that you know there are obviously some bumps along the way but for the most part we all were pulling in the same direction as far as the content goes and and what did kind of like their non-wrestling fan perspective really add to some yeah. of these topics i think it was amazing because they had done a documentary about pinball culture and championship pinball players and just the idea of of niche cultures that mm-hmm. have their own kind of politics and have their own uh, social nuances, you know, I think that helped. And I think also they did an amazing documentary about sumo and sumo mm-hmm. culture. And I think that helped. Well, they, they taught me a lot of stuff going to Japan because so much of Japanese pro wrestling obviously comes out of sumo culture. Mm-hmm. When do you inevitably you're going to be asked about uh, a second season? Like, where do you feel is is the next step here and what they're ultimately looking for here? Uh, at this point, there's still no plans for a second season. Like I have not been contacted uh, yet. So if you want a second season, let Vice know. Uh, there's a lot of ideas. There's so many things that I still want to do. We've had kind of like over the last few years, I guess at this point, several second seasons written out kind of come and go. So we're ready. You know, like there's, there's lots of stuff happening. You know, India would be amazing to talk about. Obviously, everything that's happening with OWE and just China right. becoming the new market for wrestling would be fantastic. But local stories you know stories that would be amazing to explore that are have kind of happening now in american wrestling that are and stuff we didn't get to talk about culturally in wrestling last time yeah it's not like uncovering a hot scene but i don't feel australia gets enough attention for 
what is going on there at, at the moment. And, you know, you, you get a glimpse of it when a new Japan goes there and you're seeing like guys come back from those tours that are just raving about it over there. Mm-hmm. You have the history from when Jim Barnett was running world championship wrestling there. Uh, it's a, it's a, got a strong history and it's a really hotbed at the moment. I think that would be really interesting to see like a, an actual dedicated program to, just kind of shine a light on it. Yeah, no, definitely. India is too the same way. Like you hear about this incredible history of these massive shows that happened in India and it, it feels like it's starting again. Um, but yeah, there's like a lot of places like Australia would be amazing just to go for a vacation. So yes, <laughs> Australia, New Zealand. I want to do an episode about that. Uh, lastly, any further news on maybe where people can watch the show now that it's uh, off a of broadcast or. Yep. Yeah. Um, if you are in America, it's still on demand and it's viceland.com. Canada, it's going to be coming out later this summer into the fall. On Damien's Dropbox. Yeah, my Dropbox. No, it's going to be coming out uh, uh, on uh, MTV and Crave in Canada. Okay, cool. cool. So okay. Uh, we will have, I don't have the exact date for that yet, but it's coming out soon. And uh, yeah, just going forward, we're going to have more release dates around the world coming out. And um, I'm just blown away. And once again, thank you to my team, Post Wrestling, for always believing, always supporting. I'm so happy like this day finally arrived because there was just like a whole year where you did we didn't know if or if this show would ever like if would have just gotten lost. In it the feels whole, so weird because you guys were there for the whole inception yeah. of the first documentary to the first documentary to the first shoot for this documentary to being in Japan with you, mm-hmm. you know, to doing all these post shows all these years later. Just it feels like, yeah. I just once again appreciate my family. Thank you for the time. Well, that's going to wrap up everything, uh, folks. We will be back later on Friday. We are going to have a new Ask Away, taking all your mailbag questions for the month of July. And then our G1 coverage begins Saturday night after the card from Dallas. Way and I will be live. You can tune into that if you're a Double Double Ice Cap or Espresso member of the cafe. And lots of shows this weekend. Uh, A double shot of Cruel Summer from WH Park. Sunday night, I'll be here with Nate Milton chatting about the Slammiversary card. And all of that can be found at postwrestling.com follow him at left for damien go tweet viceland tell them i want seasons two through 20 and send damien across the world and anything else also yeah last minute running 710 show where i'm going to give brady his first dab i don't even know what that means <laughs> huh yeah brady and i were talking about we're gonna do a 710 show a 710 show yeah 710 is the, what is is that? the it's like it's like the 420 for like it's like the orthodox 420 <laughs> But what? you do dabs. Oh, July 10th. Yeah, July 10th. Oh. So. And, and by Brady, you mean Brayden? Yeah. What are you doing in the show? I don't know. We just talked about it. And so, uh, you know. <laughs> what hour All of the right. day was this discussed at? I was late. We were both. We were oh, both. The brain won't remember. It, <laughs> well, so we'll, we'll, talk, have to we'll talk about it several times. But I'm, I'm, making, I'm putting it out in the world so now it becomes real. Okay. He's <laughs> forgetful at the best of times. So in the <laughs> middle of the night. That's usually when he calls WH Park randomly. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's There's been strange hours of phone calls. I couldn't imagine. That's like I could not imagine he'd be very like happy to get a, a drunk call. I don't know. I don't think he is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he is. <laughs> On that note, thank you to Damien, who is a trooper and joined us each and every week uh, throughout the run of the Viceland series. Uh, I was amazed. I didn't think you'd make it to the finish line, but here you are, a true pro. I can't believe I made it to the finish line too. Not of being here. I was never going to drop that, but I mean the show coming out. Well, we're very happy for you, and always a, a, a seat here for you whenever you choose. Oh, thank you, John. That is it. Thanks to everyone for watching, and we'll see you later on this week. I never knew you had pierced ears. Yeah. When I was 17. I got three. <laughs> I didn't know that right now. The first time. <laughs>